Stanford University. I'm uh, Aaron Rodrigue, the director of the Stanford Humanities Center. Welcome to you all. And it's a great pleasure for me uh, to have an old friend, uh, Fred Cooper, uh, an, an eminent historian uh, and an old friend, uh, speak here tonight, um, uh, this evening rather. Um, Professor Cooper is here uh, at the center as the Marta Sutton Weeks Distinguished Visitor for 2010. And so he'll be here uh, all week. The uh, Weeks Visitorship was established by a gift to endowment from Marta, Marta Sutton Weeks in 1987 and has brought eminent scholars such as film scholar Linda Williams and liter literary theorist Elaine Scarry to campus. Um, Professor Cooper will give two lectures and two seminars this week and the full schedule of lectures and seminars available in the lobby on the verso of the flyer and readings for the seminars are available in the lobby as well. Uh, professor Cooper will be introduced this afternoon by Richard Roberts, the Francis and Charles Field Professor of History at Stanford. Richard. Thank you, Aaron. <clears throat> it's my pleasure to introduce Fred Cooper, Professor of History at NYU, and author of eight books, and editor or, or co-editor of five collections of new work. Each of his books and each of his edited collections have challenged accepted paradigms and challenged us to think about history and historical change in different ways. Fred is no stranger to Stanford. Fred grew up in the North Bay and attended Stanford as, it wasn't, some of it in New Jersey. Oh, Fred, that changes it. <laughs> So Fred attended Stanford as an undergraduate. At least this part of history, I got right. <clears throat> and he graduated in 1969 with a BA in history. At that time, actually, history was one of the biggest undergraduate majors at Stanford. He's been back to Stanford regularly, having been a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences on three different occasions. Graduating from Stanford with great distinction was itself a tiny reflection of the ways in which Stanford and the wider world of the late 1960s shaped Fred's intellectual development. Fred was caught up in the whirlwind of political conflict that racked Stanford, but the whirlwind that blew into Stanford was formed by the civil rights movement, by the war in Vietnam, the decolonization of Africa, and the growing debates about Stanford's role in the wider military industrial university complex that sought to shape policies at home and abroad. These wider forces shaped Fred's thinking about power and particularly about power asymmetries and internal tensions in society and about classes. It sharpened his interest in learning more about Africa and Fred's interest in power and internal tensions is one of the three enduring themes in his corpus of work. From Stanford, Fred went, to, Fred went to Yale to pursue his PhD in African history. He was drawn to East Africa and to the problem of African slavery. The 1970s witnessed a resurgence in interest in the study of slavery, especially American slavery, through the emergence of new methodologies of family history 
quantitative history and comparative history. But the unit of analysis always seemed to be the uniqueness of antebellum American slavery. Fred's dissertation challenged the uniqueness of, the Amer of American slavery by putting his African research into debate with American forms of slavery itself. Finishing his dissertation within five years, Fred landed a job as an assistant professor of African history at Harvard in 1974. Within six years, Fred published two books, Plantation Slavery on the East Coast of Africa, and the second one was From Slaves to Squatters, Plantation Labor and Agriculture in Zanzibar and, Colonial, and, and Coastal Kenya, 1890 to 1925. From Slaves to Squatters won the prestigious Herskovitz Award for the best prize in African studies. Fred's work on slavery reflected the development of his second enduring theme throughout his work, namely his commitment to promote and provoke conversation across and between historical fields, many of which had been insular and self-contained. His work on slavery challenged his American colleagues to take the African evidence on slavery seriously, and he challenged Africanists to learn what Americanists have to say about slavery. And once they had taken each other seriously, new ways of thinking about master-slave relations, about slavery within the orbit of emerging capitalism, about dom dominant planter ideologies, and slaves' insurgent strategies were opened up. Out of Fred's demand that historians read widely outside their own fields emerged his appreciation about the politics of difference and how the politics of difference actually sustained difference. But difference is important, and Fred demanded that we pay attention to how ideologies were used, by whom, and to what ends. It was during this period that Fred began to perfect his idiom of the state of the field essay. Fred always mastered, Fred had already mastered the monograph, but now he turned his considerable intellect and insatiable appetite towards complex, dense, fractious, and often uninviting bodies of debate. Fred first turned to the debates about slavery and abolition. Next were debates about free labor, colonial labor, the limits of labor organization and politics, the nature of the colonial state. Fred's interest in the many meanings of labor and colonial efforts to grapple with the reality of an African working class resulted in his, in his third book, which was the third of a trilogy on the history of East African coast. In 1987, he published On the African Waterfront, Urban Disorder, and the Transformation of Work in Colonial Mombasa. On the African Waterfront appeared as Fred moved to the University of Michigan. In the late 70s and early 80s, Harvard sacrificed its own junior faculty in, in an ill-considered quest to hire only well-established historians. The unintended consequence of this policy was to liberate a cadre of brilliant young scholars to feed universities elsewhere. <laughs> Michigan proved a hotbed of uh, new and critical thinking about history and society, and Fred collaborated closely with Ann Stoller, Rebecca Scott, and Tom Holt. With Stoller, Fred published Tensions of Empire, Colonial Cultures in a Bourgeois World, which contributed to the development of the new empire studies. With Scott and Holt, Fred published Beyond Slavery, Explorations of Race, Labor, and Citizenship in Post-Emancipation Societies. These books, 
as well as his edited collection with Randy Packard, uh, entitled International Development in the Social Sciences, Essays in the History of Knowledge, and his book with Alan Isaacman, Florencia Mallon, William Roseberry, and Steve Stern, entitled Confronting Historical Paradigms, Peasants' Labor, and the Capitalist World System, reflected the third theme in Fred's intellectual development, namely his willingness to grapple with complex debates and to distill out of them keen insights into the power, the politics of difference, and the politics of knowledge. He subsequently grappled with complex debates about world systems, development, globalization, subaltern studies, post-colonialism, and more recently, empire itself. During this time, Fred broadened his research by entering the often forbidding world of French colonial history with its complex archives and convoluted politics. Fred conducted research in Dakar, in Senegal, and in France, probing colonial archives for evidence about how colonial administrators responded to the challenge of an emerging African working class. Fred's next book, Decolonization in the Afri and African Societies, The Labor Question in French and British Africa, put the British experience he had examined earlier in conversation with the French colonial experience. Decolonization and African societies paved the way for two more books. Um, the first was Africa Since 1940. That is the best book for undergraduates on the recent history of, uh, of Africa, and one, of course, that my students are obligated to read, by the way, Fred. <clears throat> and a set of linked essays entitled Colonialism in Question, Theory, Knowledge, and History. Fred's latest book, Empires in World History, Power, and the Politics of Difference, written together with Jane Burbank, is due out this year uh, with Princeton. And you'll be reading some of his chapters for his, uh, his seminars that are coming up. Indeed, Fred's second lecture will emerge, will engage some of the issues in that new book. During his lecture this evening, Fred is taking up a theme that we witnessed first in a handful of pages in decolonization in African societies and also in Africa since 1940, where Fred begins to think about what decolonization meant for Africans. As Fred will discuss the period after 1944, when the tide of war was firmly turning in favor of the Allies and their respective colonial allies, was rich with debates about the future, about the future of empire, the future of communities, and about the future of citizenship. And it was also about how Africans imagined their political futures. With that in mind, it's my pleasure to welcome Fred up here for the first lecture today entitled Citizenship Between Empire and Nation, France and French Africa, 1945 to 1960. Fred, thank you very much, and we look forward to your lecture. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for that very generous introduction, which reflects more deeper thought about what I've done over my career than, than I've been able to give it. <laughs> uh, and it, what he says, what, it, what he said should is as part of uh, another way in which this is, this is for me a sentimental occasion coming back to 
uh, the site of, of my undergraduate uh, education. Uh, and also to, to see here uh, Francis and Ted Jabal, uh, who, whom I know from Summit, New Jersey, where I, where I grew up. I went to high school with, with, their, with their son, Gordon. Uh, and teachers whom I had as, a, as a, uh, an undergraduate here, Dave Abernethy, taught the first course that I took on, on, on Africa. Uh, and so in some, in some ways, uh, this is the, the, the continuation of something that, that, that began uh, around the corner from, from this, this building. And it's great to see so many old friends here. Well, if the typical story of a transition from empire to nation state beginning in the 18th century is right, then the talk you're about to hear makes no sense. But my problem as an historian is to try to figure out what political possibilities did make sense to people at another time in France and French Africa in 1945 going on through 1960. The puzzle is that people then seem to think, uh, or at least said they thought, that they had a range of possibilities for turning colonial empire into something else. When political scientists, historians, post-colonial theorists, and others write as if the independent nation state was the only alternative to colonial empire, I think they are doing history backwards, imposing present-day categories on the past writing a, a story of an inevitability when people at the time saw a complex mixture of constraint and opportunity. Why was empire such a central reference point in 1945 when our accounts say it was, it was obsolete a century before? Why did African leaders think that while the colonial nature of the state was oppressive and exploitative, that other forms of a relationship between Africa and France were possible and possibly even desirable? And why did French leaders think that they could combine different peoples and even nations in Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean, as well as in Europe, into an entity that would in some sense still be French? My talk will take up those questions. In current debates in France and elsewhere about nation, colonialism, citizenship, Republican ideology, and social exclusion, most participants think they know what those terms mean. The danger in projecting backward current conceptions is that one misses the extent to which they were uncertain and contested in the past. We think we know what nation and citizenship have come to mean since the 18th century. Yet in France, the significance of such terms was not clear in 1789, in 1945, or even perhaps in the 1960s. Both sides of most French debates today assume a basic core of national ideology, a one-to-one -one relationship between the individual citizen and the nation state, stripped of mediating social affiliations, be they the estates of the 18th century, nobility, clergy, third estate, or race, religion, gender, or ethnicity in the 21st. The citizenry elect as representatives by universal suffrage, and the state guarantees to those citizens that they, that they will have equal rights and duties and equal access to the institutions of the state, independent of any social affiliations or markings. To many French people brought up in the Republican ambiance, any deviation from such principles would be destructive not only of the state, but of individuals' aspirations for equality. To others, the Republican edifice is built on foundations of hypocrisy, for it has been juxtaposed with colonialism, the negation of any idea of equality. 
The present situation in such a view is a continuation of the past. Uh, prejudice, discrimination, exclusion directed at French citizens and residents born in, in North or Sub-Saharan Africa or whose parents or grandparents came from these once colonized regions leading to despair and anger. Both the insistence on a singular unitary vision of French republicanism and the expose of the continued colonial nature of French society take their force from two different readings of the last 200 years of French history. One points to a continuing republican tradition emerging from the French Revolution. The other sees a French nation exploiting others from the slaves taken from Africa to the colonies of the West Indies to Africans exploited in their own territory. These two readings are mirror images of one another. They posit a very French France exploiting a very African Africa. The virtue or the evil of France is that of a singular nation moving through time and acting for or against other societies. France's others, yesterday's colonized people, today's immigrants, lie outside this France, either the innocent victims of French racism and exploitation, or else aliens whose culture makes them difficult to assimilate to French culture. But might not the claim that France has been, is, and must be governed by a set of national principles miss out on the more varied and contested course of nation, republicanism, state uh, in France? And might not the story of a colonial France, revealing as it is of the dark side of French history, miss out on something important too? That colonial rule wasn't such a solid, implacable edifice. That political action by Africans and others among the colonized wasn't always in vain. That French political institutions and ideologies weren't givens that one either accepted, rejected, or stood outside. In what follows, I want to look very briefly at the relationship of national and imperial France since the 1789 revolution, then in detail at the openings and closures of the decade and a half after World War II. To whom the principles of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen of 1789 was not so clear. To some, the French nation was a bounded entity. Citizenship applied to people, only to people, who met certain minimum standards for admission. But as the classic scholarship of C.L.R. James and the more recent work of Laurent Dubois has shown, the boundedness of the revolutionary nature was thrown open by events in the empire. In the midst of the revolution, people in the colonies began to claim that the rights of the citizen extended to an imperial, transoceanic France. In the plantation colony of Saint-Domingue, now Haiti, uh, French planters, then property-owning people of mixed origins, and finally the slaves revolting in 1791, invoked citizen dis citizenship discourse to claim their part in a revolutionary society. The freeing of slaves in Saint-Domingue in 1793 and then in other French colonies reflected both the inclusive version of citizenship principles and the state's need for new categories of citizens to defend the revolution against royalists and other empires. The revolution, like most successful social movements, brought together people across social categories in a fragile yet powerful struggle that, lo that long before it aimed at seceding from France sought to make France into a different sort of polity, an empire of free citizens. Its famous leader, Toussaint Louverture, was for a time a commissioner of the French Revolutionary government. Empire citizenship was ended by Napoleon, who reinstated slavery in 1802. He was at that point, it was at that point that the Haitian Revolution turned from remaking France into exiting from it. Napoleon's army was unable to subdue the revolution in Saint-Domingue, 
And the proclamation of the independent republic of Haiti in 1804 was the flip side of Napoleon's successful reinstatement of slavery in Guadeloupe, Martinique, and other colonies. France itself would be under republican government for only a third of the 19th century. Under monarchical or republican government, the line between a national France and an imperial France was frequently contested. In 1848, in another revolutionary situation, the definitive abolition of slavery in French colonies brought an entire category of people of African descent into the realm of citizenship rather than into an intermediate category. In the oldest French colonies, the quatre communes, the four communes of Senegal, the original inhabitants were recognized as having the qualities of French citizens with the right to vote. Unlike their Caribbean compatriots, whose personal lives were regulated under the French civil code, the originaires, they were called, of, of the four communes, could exercise these citizenship rights without giving up the right to come under Islamic law in civil affairs, notably marriage and inheritance. But they were the exception, and an increasingly marginal one. In Algeria, conquered beginning in 1830, things took the opposite course. The original terms of French acquisition, in which France promised to respect Algerian status under Islamic law, was interpreted to exclude them from French citizenship. A series of judicial decisions clarified what this meant. Muslim Algerians, and Jews too until 1870, were French subjects and French nationals, but not French citizens. That they could become so was only made clear in 1865, and the ruling specified that Muslims desiring to be citizens would have to renounce their personal status under Islamic law, coming under the French civil code. French officials would decide if they had gone far enough towards accepting the French way of life that they would be worthy of citizenship. Few wanted to make such a move, fewer still were accepted. The juridical reasoning behind these provisions put the question of personal status at the core. A person subject to Islamic or Mosaic law lacked the autonomy of the citizen, just as women up to 1944 were denied the vote on the grounds that they were not independent actors but dependent on a male head of household. The cultural dimension of the story shines through. The Muslim Algerian was too different. As French colonization extended into sub-Saharan Africa in the late 19th century, the Algerian model, not the Caribbean or the Senegalese one, was followed. Africans became French nationals and French subjects, but not French citizens. The Third Republic's progressive image of itself was satisfied by leaving the door open to Africans who acquired French civilization, renounced their status under customary law, accepted the French civil code, and convinced officials that they had, they had acquired a French way of life. It was a door through which very few people passed. None of this was as neat as it appears at first glance nor was it ever entirely persuasive to French legislators themselves. In the 1880s and during World War I, deputies in the French legislature considered extending citizenship to Muslim Algerians regardless of personal status. The issue was practical as well as one of principle. An inclusive citizenship would mean more people on the French side. When France had greater need for its people to serve in wartime, inclusionary rhetoric became, strong, became stronger only to be pulled back when veterans and, and, of, and other, uh, others claimed fuller citizenship rights on the basis of having paid the blood tax. And that's the imagery that, that French propagandists like to have of the, the African serving in his own way the French cause. In Senegal, the issue had a particular valence. First, citizenship had been under attack 
by some European Frenchmen, officials, and others for conveying too many rights to Africans by virtue of their category, originaire, rather than by their having met certain criteria as individuals. World War I gave Senegal's leading African politician, Blaise Jean, the opportunity to firm up his constituents' rights. He campaigned for the originaire to be subject to the same military regulations as all other French citizens, including conscription into regular regiments. And as a quid pro quo for the reaffirmation of the originaire citizenship, the legislature in 1916 passed what became known as the Blaise Jean Law, which made clear the special citizenship ha uh, status of the inhabitants of these four towns. But things went no further. French colonies in Africa, like Algeria, remained divided between citizens and, and subjects. Colonialism was a moving target, represented as a kind of assembly uh, of, an, of an empire, as a map of, of a world in, in which 107 million inhabitants uh, belonged to the French Empire, only 42 million of which lived in European France. But it could not change, and it could not, it could not stay the way it was after World War II. European powers knew then that things could no longer be the same, but they sought to reinvigorate and re-legitimate empire rather than abandon it. That France made use of military power, torture, and collective punishment in an effort to keep the empire together is known, if sometimes conveniently forgotten. The massacres of Sétif, Madagascar, the wars in Vietnam and Algeria. Yet keeping the empire together also entailed efforts to give people a stake in its institutions. Just how far France could swing toward either the repressive or the incorporative pole was very much in question during the 1940s. The new imperialism of the post-war era implied explicit repudiation of the taken-for-granted quality of colonial racism. The sincerity of French officials is not the most relevant question. More important is that the new politics of egalitarian imperialism gave African leaders institutional and ideological mechanisms to make claims against the French state. What kind of France was imaginable by different actors in 1941, 1946, 1956, 1959? At the end of the war, leading French followers of the Gaul were beginning to think that the words calling empire, up to, up to then ordinary parts of political discourse, had to be eliminated in favor of federation. Uh, institutions of a new republic, but not in proportion to population. For colonial subjects outnumbered European French citizens. I will not accept to be put in a minority by Negro chiefs, exclaimed the socialist politician in 1944. But how did one build a federal France when the architects believed the component parts to be, for a long time at least, unequal? Yet minority representation was extremely important. Certain aspects of colonial rule, such as forced labor or a separate judicial system, could not stand the exposure given them by African deputies to the French legislature, even though there were only some uh, 10 of them uh, from West Africa. And as legislative leaders realized, if colonial deputies, however few in number as a whole, refused to go along with the constitutional process, the provisions on the overseas territories would have no legitimacy. The African territories electorates 
uh, voting for members of the Assemblée Nationale Constituante, the unit that would write the Constitution and act as a legislature, legislature uh, uh, were divided into two colleges, two electoral colleges, one for citizens, uh, and overseas they were dominated by residents of European origin, the other for subjects, uh, and that meant most Africans, except in the case of the four communes of Senegal. But the presence of these small, the small number of elected deputies in 1946 changed the tone and substance of debate over citizenship as soon as it began. What did the African deputies bring to the debate? Leopold Sangor of Senegal uh, had, had published uh, an article in which he told his fellow Africans, assimilate, do not be assimilated. They should critically examine what French culture had to offer and incorporate it in their conceptual universe, but not give up what he called their Negro African heritage. Sangour refused both the universalistic pretensions of French culture and closed-in visions of African culture. Instead, he sought a wider conception of the universal, including multiple particularities and influencing each other. Elected to the Assemblée Nationale Constituante, joining its constitutional commission, uh, acquiring the reputation as the grammarian of the French assembly, Sangor applied his conception to writing a text defining the place of colonial peoples in a broad conception of what France was. From the earliest drafts of the, of the constitutional provisions on the French Union, the deputies seemed to agree that all subjects should acquire the qualities of French citizens with all the rights connected to that status, and they should have these rights without giving, having to give up their personal status. It was Sangor who developed systematically in a report for the assembly the argument for generalized citizenship with different civil status regimes. He evoked the revolutionary heritage for generalized citizenship, uh, the, the revolutionary heritage, citing the decree of 1794 that had abolished slavery and declared, and he cited this text, all men without distinction of color resident in our colonies are French citizens and enjoy all the rights assured by the Constitution. Sangor condemned the decree of Napoleon reestablishing slavery and lauded the revolutionary government of, of 1848 for definitively making slaves into citizens. But the situation, he said, was now different. In 1798 and 1848, the Jacobin tradition was vital. The only possible political stance was the assimilation of everybody into the, the French person, an ob, a, a, a generalized universal French person. But since 1848, there had been progress in sociology, and he said, especially ethnology. France had discovered the vigor of Arab, Chinese, and African civilizations. Sangor imposed, quote, a brutal integration that risked breaking a French equilibrium and the equilibrium of these new worlds, unquote. To codify a France that simultaneously respected difference and equivalence meant a compromise between federal and unitary forms of government. He proposed that all French subjects be defined simply as, his words, simply citizens without specifying whether they are French citizens or citizens of the French Union. Usage will decide the label, which in any event is of secondary importance, end quote. All overseas citizens would be represented in the federal parliament, but not in large numbers. At the same time, the territorial assemblies in each of the French overseas territories would be given stronger powers than regional councils had in European France. The draft constitution that emerged was vague on the powers of different assemblies and modes of election, but all seemed to agree that inhabitants of overseas territory should be citizens and participate in some manner in governing themselves. 
compromising between a homogenizing Frenchness and dichotomous difference. Uh, as the centrist deputy, Paul Costa-Fleure, put it, we are today partisans of a pluralist democracy, that is, a democracy of groups. The center-right these days in France doesn't say things like that. The, the draft contained the provision that all members of the union have the quality of citizen, enjoy the totality of rights attached to that status. Citizenship rights could be exercised independently of one's personal status, and those whose status regime was currently other than the civil code could retain that status unless they specifically chose to renounce it. One deputy even invoked the precedent of the Roman Empire's extension of citizens to its free subjects in 212 to point out that uh, citizenship did not make local civilizations disappear. The empire reference was important in 1946. Fearing that the draft constitution might be defeated in the referendum on its, on its approval scheduled for May, Sangora's colleague from Senegal, Lamine Gay, uh, asked the assembly to put in the form of law the constitution's provision on citizenship. The bill passed unanimously. The proposed constitution was indeed voted down in a referendum in which only people who were citizens under the previous constitution had the right to vote, leaving out almost all Africans. The defeat led to new elections and a more conservative constituent assembly. Over the summer, the defenders of old-style colonialism mobilized, attacking the extension of citizenship except individual by individual. As the debate resumed in the second Assemblée Nationale Constituante, an influential deputy, Edouard Herriot, warned that if one took literally the notion of all citizens participating in electoral institutions of France, then France would become, he said, the colony of its former colonies. At this, Sangor jumped up to reply, this is racism. But Herriot's point had been made before and been made again, including by Sangor himself. A unitary conception of France, one citizen, one vote, was not at issue. Sangor and his colleagues wanted a pluralist federal France in which each component, European France included, would exercise power over its own affairs and express its own political personality, while a federal government would have limited powers to oversee common matters. When the governing party tried to dilute the citizenship provisions of the original draft, the one that had been voted down, overseas deputies briefly walked out of the assembly and the, and the government, realizing it needed their presence for, to have legitimacy, backed down. The citizenship provision that Sangor had helped to, to write came back with studied ambiguity. All inhabitants of French territory would be citizens, but it's not entirely clear what, citizen, what they were citizens of, whether it was of, of the, exactly the same as of the French Republic or of the French Union, that is the empire as a whole. The final version stated that all inhabitants of overseas territories have the quality of citizen on the same basis as French nationals of the metropole or of the, or of the overseas territories. Specific laws will establish a condition under which they will exercise their rights as citizens. The next article specified that all French nationals and inhabitants of the French Union have the quality of citizen of the French Union, which assures them of the enjoyment of the rights and liberties guaranteed by the preamble of the present constitution. A bit confusing, what's the difference here? The difference is the nature of an empire being transformed into something else. Uh, the complexity of what the French Union was and how it was being defined. Western equatorial Africans were inhabitant, inhabitants of the Territoire d'Outre-mer, the overseas territories. They were nationals of the French Republic, although until May 1946 with the, the Lamine Gay Law, they were not citizens of it. 
But the Union also included Moroccans, Tunisians, and in the Chinese, whose territories were, were called associated states. They used to be called protectorates. They had come under French overrule by treaty, and sovereignty remained vested in the Bey of Tunisia, the Sultan of Morocco, and the kings of Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. The treaties transforming some, perhaps most, of their sovereign prerogatives to, Fran to France as protecting power, or so went the theory. They had their own nationalities, not the French one, although Africans uh, in, the, in the Territoire d'Outre-mer had French nationality. Uh, so in 1946, Africans were declared to have the quality of citizen, Moroccans the quality of citizen of the French Union. Costa Fleuret, the center-right deputy I quoted earlier, defended the latter provision in terms that were almost Sangorian. He did not want to presume that Tunisians or Moroccans wanted to be French citizens, but they would have the rights of French citizens under the Constitution. Africans were simply citizens. The right of citizens who do not have French civil status to keep that status unless they renounced it uh, was guaranteed under the Constitution. Together, these provisions allowed the French ministry to claim, however uh, implausibly, the legislature wanted to mark the perfect equality of all in public life, but not the perfect identity of the French of the metropole and the overseas French. Was France in 1946 truly multicultural as well as egalitarian? The institutions of the Fourth Republic hardly reflect that. Ultimate power regarded a national assembly which remained national but was no longer quite so metropolitan as it had been before World War II. Uh, it had representatives of the overseas territories in Algeria but not of the associated states like Morocco. Yet it didn't fully represent those territories since the metropole had far more deputies in proportion to population. The federal idea was honored by the Assembly of the French Union, half of whose members represented overseas France, half the metropole, but this assembly had only a consultative role. While the president of the Union, the president of the Republic wearing a different hat, represented federal executive authority, he had no federal cabinet or ministries. Those powers resided in the prime minister, but he was responsible only to the, to the National Assembly, not the federal assembly. It was a complicated and rather odd structure. Just as the sanctifying of French citizenship in the revolution of 1789 did not bring, it with, bring with it universal suffrage until 1944 when women got the vote, the Fourth Republic's generalization of citizenship did not result in universal suffrage until 1956. It kept in place a two-college system in Algeria and most of Africa, depending on, on personal status, a decision which all but doomed Algeria to violent struggle, but which ended more peacefully with universal suffrage in a single college in sub-Saharan Africa in 1956. The territorial assemblies had few powers, contrary to what Senghor had argued for. The National Assembly had a small minority of deputies from the ex-colonies, although they had influence on matters of particular concern to them. In any case, legislatures were so divided that even a few uh, uh, colonial, former colonial subjects uh, had votes that mattered. Despite these weaknesses and hypocrisies, dismissing the importance of the citizenship breakthrough is to miss a key dimension of citizenship. Citizenship is a claim-making construct whose particular power lies in the fact that it weaves together obligations and rights. So a state that wants to enforce obligations cannot easily dismiss claims to rights made in the same terms as its own hegemony is being expressed. 
West African political and social movements appreciated the claim-making power of citizenship quite well. They kept up steady pressure in the late 1940s and early 1950s to remedy the defects of the Constitution, to give the Federal Assembly real power, to give territorial assemblies real power over, in, over issues affecting each territory, to eliminate the double college and reduce disparities of voting strength, and to institute universal suffrage throughout overseas France, uh, a battle that, that was finally won in 1956. The other side of the mobilizing effort entailed developing the social and economic dimensions of citizenship, not just the political ones. Social citizenship made a great deal more in European France after the war than it did before, let alone what, what universal citizenship meant in AD 212 in the Roman Empire, uh, as social entitlements were expanded and consolidated into a welfare state. Africans could claim, as I've argued elsewhere, that social legislation applied to them as much as to any other citizen. And they argued strongly for equal wages, equal benefits, equal education, and equal access to medical care. The political and social dimensions of citizenship posed a dilemma to government leaders. Even while the Constitution was being debated, a wave of strikes, including a general strike that shut down Senegal's capital of Dakar for, for over 10 days, took place under the slogan, Equal Pay for Equal Work. Strikers, from civil servants to dockers, only went back to work when officials made large concessions on wages and family allowances and accepted the normality of negotiating with African trade unions within a structure of industrial relations virtually identical to that of European France. Social movements and the rhetoric of citizenship reinforced each other. The logical of equivalence implied that the standard of living of African France had to be leveled upward with no obvious place to stop other than the standard of European France. By the 1950s, the government was reeling under the escalating demands for equivalence and willing to concede key political demands in the hope that it could distance itself from the social ones. This entailed a major shift in regard to the weak electoral institutions of the overseas territories under the 1946 Constitution. Elections under universal suffrage uh, and with, sing with a single college for all voters, whether, whether white or black, in each territory predictably put in place governments elected by an African majority. The once anemic territorial assemblies were given strong budgetary authority, while the institutions that exercised important functions for all the territories of French West Africa, heretofore an instrument of centralization, were stripped of most of their power and eventually abandoned. Now, French leaders hoped African leaders elected by African taxpayers in each territory would have to pay the bills for social entitlement. Although aware that increased autonomy for territories meant less of a claim for resources of the French Republic, African leaders sought to exercise the power that the new law conferred on them. Sangor saw more clearly than most how high the price was. Africa was being balkanized cut into fragments too small to be economically or politically effective. Within the spectrum between federalism and unitarism, uh, the reforms of 1956 tilted strongly toward the side of territorial autonomy and away from centralized political authority uh, with a single standard of social equality for all French people. Meanwhile, the implications of multiple civil status were uncertain. Officials realized they needed to specify the rules by which marriage, births, and inheritance could be recorded under different regimes of personal status. But the government couldn't manage to enact a legislative 
text on these uh, subjects, nor can it figure out a way by which people could renounce their, their personal status and come under the French civil code. All this seems to uh, reflect a certain uh, reluctance to accept that all these statuses were really equivalent uh, under a, in, a diverse, uh, under, in a diverse France. Félix Oufouet Boigny, leader of the Côte d'Ivoire, thought the idea of renunciation of civil status was insulting. He said, we are blacks and proud of the color of our skin. We do not want to renounce our personal status. We have our religion, our customs, which we value greatly. But some Africans did want to get French civil status to mark their own conversion to Christianity or to pass on property to their sons rather than through the matrilineal principles of some African groups. The dossiers contain formulaic expressions to the effect that the applicant has approached French civilization by his manner of life and social habits. That's a quotation. In 1955, the Constitutional Court reminded everyone that under the Constitution, accession to French civil status was a right, not a favor. Using the methods and, and uh, uh, once used to restrict French citizenship made no legal sense. The inability to provide a juridical basis for a multicultural citizenry brings us back to the ambivalence over the basic object among the elite of European France. Frenchness was neither culturally nor historically neutral. At the same time, leaders, as leaders of European France tried to say, were trying to save the, the empire by making it less colonial, they claimed that France had a special mission to elevate the people of the overseas territories. Leaders of African France shared much of this thinking. They were using the development concept too, making claims on union-wide resources needed to lift impoverished, poorly educated populations to the level of European France. This unstable situation was being pushed in different directions. Sangor and many of his colleagues kept trying to strengthen imperial federalism, to bring together different West African territories into what he called a primary federation, strictly within West Africa. Uh, that, and this, this federation would in turn be integrated into greater France. Félix Oufoué Boigny rejected the African Federation, but he wanted to preserve the French one, with each territory participating directly in French institutions. Students and youth groups were, by the mid-1950s, rejecting all of this and beginning to claim total independence. Among leaders of European France, most of the center and left wanted both to retain some form of French community and lower the burdens uh, of, uh, of social citizenship on uh, the French metropolitan taxpayer. A right-wing anti-colonialism was also surfacing in the mid-1950s, an argument that colonies, given the escalating demands for development and social expenditures, were costing France more than they were bringing in, and they should be allowed to go their own way. Different definitions of France were in play, as were different definitions of Africa, some more national than others. The context was shaped by the war in Algeria, the crisis in French politics, and the Gauls coming to power in 1958. After 1958, the French Union became the French community, another attempt to reconfigure a France that was wider than its European component. The new constitution retained a central feature of the 1946 version. The people in the overseas territories were rights-bearing French citizens independent of personal status. The relationship of territories to the French community, however, was different. Overseas territories were now called member states of the community. Their attachment was now considered voluntary, and they could exit if they voted to do so. 
Member states would be self-governing except in regard to foreign affairs, defense, monetary policy, and a few other designated areas. Their representatives would no longer sit in the French National Assembly, but the heads of each government would, would, re, would meet regularly with the French president and prime minister in what was called the Executive Council. The 1958 Constitution stated explicitly that there was only one citizenship, and that was, I quote, of the French Republic and of the community. All citizens could exercise their rights in the territory of any member state, but the Constitution said nothing about nationality. And there ensued a curious dynamic. At the, at the February 1958 meeting of the Executive Council, a decision was taken that there was only one nationality in the community, the French one. But the African leaders were not happy with the decision, and at the July meeting, they insisted on further consideration on the question of whether there were single or multiple nationalities within the French community. The council accepted, quoting their um, memo, their, uh, uh, their procès verbal, the need to respect, on the one hand, the existence of growing national sentiment in each state, and on the other hand, the unity of all members of the community in relation to the exterior. There were two concepts of nationality in play. The French government employed a classic notion in international relations. A nationally was, nationality was defined by an international community recognizing the distinct personality of a political entity. African leaders thought of nationality as coming not from without but from within, as a sense of collective purpose and action. In such terms, the insistence that France had nationality while African member states did not was insulting. French leaders got the point. The initial French position shifted, and a committee of experts was called to come up with a new synthesis. Their central idea was, was that of une nationalité superposée, a superposed nationality. Each member state would have its own nationality and citizenship, Senegal, uh, Côte d'Ivoire, uh, Niger. It would write its own nationality legislation, and its bureaucrats would decide whom to consider a national. The national, but, but the nationality conferred by an individual state would automatically confer nationality at the level of the community. Inside the community, there would be many nationalities, but the outside world would see only one, that of the French Republic and of, and of the community. We are far from the idea of sovereignty as absolute and territorial, so dear to, to international relations experts and, and lawyers. Uh, sovereignty could, could be layered. It, can, it, it could have diff, different levels uh, to it. And here we, we see that the French government of, of Charles de Gaulle was so eager to preserve the French community that it would concede to a bureaucrat in Dakar the right to determine who had the rights of citizenship in Paris or Marseille. <laughs> Superposed nationality was accepted by the Executive Council in its meeting of December 1959. Meanwhile, another discussion of nationality was going on, this one in French West Africa. Just where did one find the nation on the African continent? Sangor and his political ally, Mamadou Dja, had for some, main, some time maintained a clear position on this, not in Senegal. Sangor claimed that his aspirations for national expression were not, quote, tainted by Senegality, unquote. For Mamadou Dja, I'm quoting him, Senegalese democracy will not be viable except in the context of a larger African proletarian democracy integrating itself at a higher level. Ja proclaimed, it is necessary in the final analysis that the imperialist conception of the nation state give way to the modern conception of the multinational state. 
This is exactly the reverse of the relationship between the modern and, and the imperialist of most uh, theorists today writing on this subject. Um, but here we see the idea of layered sovereignty, territorial, pan-African, French Union sovereignty, or French community sovereignty. The goal was in part practical. The territories were too small and too poor to be the instruments of human progress. Interdependence was a necessity. And it was in part cultural, a concept of a people who were simultaneously African and French. Sangor sought to balance what he termed vertical solidarity, by which Africans could benefit from connection to resource-rich France, and horizontal solidarity among Africans themselves. Oufoui Boigny preferred a direct relationship between his Cote d'Ivoire and the French community. Other African heads of state were sensitive to the reality of their territorial electoral base and their territorial power, however much they were attracted by the idea of African unity. Time was not on Sangor's side, for the reality of territorial power was bringing leaders to invoke a territorialized vision of the nation. For a time, it looked as if Upper Volta and Dahomey would join Senegal and the French Sudan in trying to overcome these structural obstacles and create an African federation that would, as a single collectivity, participate in a renovated French community. But in the end, only the Sudan and Senegal went forward. The Mali Federation, as it, as it was called, embodied layered sovereignty, with certain functions left to the two federated states, others at the federal level, while still others, including for a moment, defense and foreign affairs, were left to the French community. Mali began in, in 1960, early 1960, the process of negotiating with France for the status of international sovereignty, that is, for independence as a federal state, as a federation. All this was happening in the shadow of the Algerian war. The separation of Algerians from France was, cut mo was combated with the utmost brutality, but also by social programs, such as quotas for jobs in the civil service, what Americans call affirmative action, directed at les Français musulmans d'Algérie, uh, French Muslim Algerians. From today's vantage point, especially the continued argument that a Republican government cannot recognize ethnic distinctions among its people, the precedent is a striking one. Charles de Gaulle and the Fifth Republic recognized uh, Algerian Muslims as a distinct category of citizen uh, for the purpose of political and social uh, programs. Taken together, one sees the importance which the French government attached to holding itself together in some way, to, to keeping this community successor to the empire and the French Union, not simply in an, uh, in an intransigent defense of a colonial status quo, but through a quest for new forms of the state that would be politically viable and still French. Violence and social reform were both part of this effort. The idea of a superposed community nationality became obsolete before it was implemented. For Mali's independence would imply its own nationality in the sense of both Sangorian aspiration and international relations conventions. The French government now changed its own rules to allow member states becoming independent to remain in the French community. Contrary to what a present-day observer would expect, French negotiators had no qualms about allowing Malian citizens to have free entry into France, to stay or return as they wished, to attend French schools and compete for civil service jobs in France. What, what worried French uh, officials was that French citizens and corporations might be denied access to Mali. Malians are more skeptical about the community, more so the Sudanese and the Senegalese. 
Mali's representatives were willing to sign bilateral accords giving reciprocal rights to French and Malian citizens in each other's country, but not to use the word citizenship at the community level anymore. Mali got most of what it wanted from France. So eager was the French government to maintain itself as something like a multinational polity. In the middle of 1960, both France and Mali backed into more national positions than either had wanted in the last 15 years. The collapse of the Mali Federation and the French community were closely related. For one of the main reasons African leaders were interested in the community was that so that they could build an African federation under its umbrella. When Africans could not agree on the latter, the former became less interesting. French officials were willing to accept the Mali Federation because its willingness to stay in the community would set a precedent that might keep the community together. But Mali's rejection of community citizenship weakened whatever substance the community had. Both Mali and France, as negotiations proceeded in the spring of 1960, found that what they really wanted could be had by bilateral agreements rather than through community institutions. Other African states following Mali toward independence would see things the same way. With it went the possibilities of layered sovereignty that had been on the table since 1946. France, like the new African states emerging from its authority, would be a conventional nation state. The Mali Federation did not last. It broke up largely over fears by the leaders of Senegal and the Sudan that their own political bases would be undermined by their partner. Senegal and Sudan, which kept the name of Mali for itself, became separate states and soon passed their own nationality acts. France revised its own nationality act, thinking first it wanted to keep the option of retaining French nationality open to its former overseas citizens, and hoping especially that French-educated elites now governing African states would act more favorably to French interests if they had dual nationality. France then moved in a more conventional national direction by allowing only former colonial citizens who resided within the current boundaries of the French Republic to claim their French nationality, then setting a time limit on when such a move could be made. The independence of Algeria in 1962 was a further step toward making France more national at the same time that Algeria acquired its own nationality. Under the 1962 treaty, Algerian and Algerians and French people were supposed to have easy options to take either nationality. But by the, by the summer, France was unilaterally restricting the rights of Algerians of Islamic civil status to opt for French nationality while opening the door to Algerians of French civil status. And with Algerian independence, 55 Algerian deputies left the French National Assembly, turning a once multinational legislative body into the kind of Franco-French institution that it has been ever since. With the tightening of immigration rules by France in 1974 and the increase of anti-African and anti-Maghrebian xenophobia in the 1980s, the idea of a clearly defined French nation defending itself and its republican values against outsiders became staples of French political discourse. Such a notion of France requires erasing not just a long history of colonization, but a brief but important period between 1945 and 1960 when, a diff when different versions of a plural France in which sovereignty would be divided across different layers of government, which recognized juridically different forms of civil, civic life, and which put forth a radical claim that those different forms were compatible with political and social equality. These alternatives to empire and to the nation state were open, seriously considered possibilities until a notably recent date. Their erasure 
is not just part of the recent politics of France, but a more general tendency to think of the last 200 years of history as a long transition from empire to nation state, omitting the alternatives that lay in between. Thank you for your attention. Even five or six. Okay, take uh, a few questions, please. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering if you could sort of show the transition of, of those changes on into the current European Union and sort of how that kind of comes into the mix in the modern day. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is that, that in, in uh, the 1950s, France was talking about turning its empire into a confederation, but it would be a, it would be a confederation uh, that was built out of a structure of, of inequality of extreme inequality of a colonial empire, uh, and that's the 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 kind of the kinds of institutions that were being considered throughout the 1950s, and which ultimately failed. But France ended up in a confederation, another sort of confederation. In the 1950s, nobody knew that. Uh, the plans for the uh, European Economic Community were slow to get to get started. Even the Treaty of Rome was more hope than reality. Uh, so. One shouldn't say, see these, these things as simultaneously, although they were being talked about and debated simultaneously. Uh, and Sangor even once used the, 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 the phrase that, it, that he didn't want, uh, want uh, uh, French Africa to become the wedding dowry given to Germany in the creation of the European economic community. Uh, um, so what you see here is going from one model of confederation uh, that was based on bringing equality to an unequal structure of empire into another kind of confederation which presumes that Europeans are sufficiently alike, that they can be combined into a confederal uh, structure. What, but, but what both versions of confederation share is layered sovereignty. Neither, neither presumes that territory neatly bounds, bounds all the prerogatives of a sovereign state. How did the experience in Guinea uh, impact this? Uh, I remember at, at the time the idea of, of the example of somebody rejecting uh, full membership was uh, um, seized by the French and acted on in, in a pretty vindictive manner. Uh, they were accused by people in Gabon where I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer of, of having just pulled everything out to try to disable it as much as possible. Uh, well, there's no question that, that, that the Gaul reacted vindictively to when Secretary uh, decided late in, in, in August that he would oppose the September referendum, vote no in the September referendum on accepting the Constitution of 1958. And that's, that's what created the, the French community. Uh, and, and countries were given um, the option at that, the territories were given the, the option then of voting to remain within the French community. Uh, or else uh, having immediate in the independence. And de Gaulle cut Guinea off at that, uh, at that point. Uh, whether the stories of pulling out telephone wires and so on are, 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 are true is, 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 not so, is not so clear, but there's no question 
uh, that the Gaulle reacted uh, spitefully to, to this. Um, it was a real problem for everybody else in, in, in French West Africa because Guinea was the only French territory that voted no uh, in, the, in the referendum, uh, although the research that people are doing now and the archives on this are just, just opening up is, is, is suggesting uh, that the level of uncertainty about how each territory would vote was extremely high until very late in the game, and that includes Guinea. Uh, although most territories ended up voting uh, by margins of something like 90% in whatever way they, they, they voted, which makes one a little bit suspicious. This sounds this sound suspiciously Soviet. Um, but, any, but anyway, the, the, the fact that, that Guinea did what it did uh, made clear that there was an alternative uh, model. Uh, but if you try to follow the politics of the leaders of the other territories of French West Africa, what they seemed to want to do was go their own way, work with the confederal model of, of France and, and, and for some the federal model within West Africa, and their hope was that they could uh, bring Guinea back into it. Uh, and in fact, some of their uh, nationality legislation was written with, with, that, uh, with that possibility in mind. I'm wondering um, to what degree, or if so, um, if you think that this process that you've described about the debates over what it means to be a French national influenced the nationality or the form of the nationalism that emerged in former French colonies as compared to former British colonies or former Portuguese colonies? Well, I think it, 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 um, it probably did, and I think the, the uh, even the word nationalism is, is, is one that has to be used very, very, uh, very carefully. Uh, the, uh, the difference between the, the uh, and I'm not sure that the difference was that so much of aspiration as it was of institutional possibilities that could be developed over, over time. Uh, it's clear that, that, that political movements in all of, of colonial Africa wanted different things. They wanted to control their own destinies. But people also wanted to build schools, uh, to build port facilities. Uh, they wanted access to, to resources. Uh, and, locate, and locating citizenship at a different level uh, gave some people the possibility of claiming uh, access to those resources as a citizen, not as a supplicant asking for aid. Uh, and that affects how the, the politics uh, throughout this period when, when everything was in, uh, in flux. In the, in, in the case of, of British colonies, uh, the initial uh, policy of the British was to keep everything focused on the individual territory, to give space for whatever sentiments there were, the space that was given to them would be a territorial space. Uh, and once people get access to, re to resources, well, that tends to shape the way politics is formed. So uh, the, the, uh, the way in which uh, political actors would act nationally was shaped not simply by, by sentiments. And I'm not persuaded that putting everything, all politics under the category of nationalism describes the, 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 the kinds of aspirations that people, that people had. I think that's a, a, a read backwards. But how you take this, how this 
variety of perspectives and the variety of things that people were organizing for and struggling for became uh, a, a realizable goal that people could, could work for and see themselves having a chance of, of getting. And that's a, that, that's a different question. I think these institutional structures are, are, are important. But here we see a, long, a, a convergence over time between the French and the British cases. After 1956, with the territorial governments being uh, developed, the French actually call their policy territorialization in 1956. The, the French, you might say, are becoming more British. Uh, and accordingly, politics becomes more focused on the, uh, the resources and, the, and probably later, but to a significant extent, the symbolism of the individual territorial units. Now, Britain in 1948 takes a move that you might say is becoming more French. Uh, the British Parliament passed in 1948 the Nationalities Act. That gave a kind of, of superposed nationality. Uh, that, and it, it, was, it was really a response to the role played by the dominions in World War II and the possibility that their services might be needed again. Uh, but it, and also the, the increasingly clear citizenship laws that Canada, New Zealand, et cetera, were, were producing. It basically said that anybody whom, who was assigned citizenship by Canada would have a second order citizenship that was in the British Empire. Uh, and this would apply to the colonies as well, since the colonies had no other nationality other than um, the British one, so that, so that somebody from Nigeria or Jamaica would have, under the 1948 Act, the right to, uh, to go and settle in the British Isles, which parallels the right that a French uh, African citizen would have had between 1946 and the early 1960s to move to, uh, to European France. Uh, so the, the relationship of, of, um, of nation, nation, nationality, nationalism to institutions uh, is, is pretty complex and also variable uh, depending on the kinds of moves that these different states made uh, in the changing configurations of what is possible, what, what can be defended, what can be claimed. First of all, thank you for a really interesting talk. Um, and I just would like you to hear, um, it seems like you've made an extremely important point that, that this, you know, these superposed nationalities or a form of federation may have, you know, I'm wondering if you would care to speculate whether there were lost opportunities from the point of view of um, Africans seeking self-determination and development in something like the Mali Federation going down. And secondarily, it seems to be that there's a, there's a tone under here about the implications for thinking about this in the contemporary world in the sense of our debates about nationalism, post-nationalism, globalization. Um, and I'm wondering if you would care to flesh that out a little bit more, because you seem to imply a, a critique of the way certain th theorists are talking about mm -hmm. this. And I'm just curious as to what you might add um, from looking at these materials about maybe a different way of thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the, the, the two parts of your question are very closely linked. I, what are the opportunities that people had? And I think the, the, I think the uh, actors themselves 
saw, and, and from my point of view with very good reason, that there were important lost opportunities in the 1950s. And the, the one that, that uh, so many African leaders were talking about throughout the 1950s was African unity. Uh, and some, like, like, like Sekou Touré, the leader who took, took Guinea out of the French Confederation in, in, in 1958, saw, saw it, uh, though I don't think he saw it that way for, hadn't seen it that, it was only in, in the last weeks that he actually made this, this argument, uh, that African unity implied a complete break with, with, with France. But others saw, others saw that, that the relationship with uh, France was conducive to uh, the formation of relationships among Francophone African uh, countries. So they saw, they, in, in that sense, they were trying to, to make opportunities out of the ambiguity of a political situation in which, in which France no longer had the power to, to act in a colonial sense the way it had for so many years, uh, but, was, uh, but had to, to, to deal with people actually exercising political uh, voice. Now, what, what, is, what is lost with the, the possibilities of, an African, of African federalism, as well as with some kind of uh, confederal structure that inv involved an, uh, a still unequal relationship with a rich France and a poor Africa, uh, there, there are various political possibilities that are lost. And to, to one of the most important is the, is the way of making claims, because uh, African governments now do have to come to a country like France as, as supplicants not as citizens. Uh, but the more important loss is the, is the relation, political relationship among Africans themselves. For with the, with the breakup of empire into a whole series of, uh, of small nation states, and, and in the case of West Africa, you're talking about nine of them, uh, in, instead of one potentially large-scale uh, federation. Well, each of these, uh, each of these states is, try, is jockeying for its patronage con connections with rich countries, with rich corporations, with, with, the with international financial institutions, each of which is, is, is trying to defend a, uh, a form of, of, of territorial sovereignty. Uh, so that situation is one that is, is, once the institutional possibilities of federation or confederation are lost, that situation is, is, is quite conducive to uh, to the development of, of, uh, of very jealous views of sovereignty. That's the only card that people have left to play if you're the, if you're the government of Niger or Burkina Faso. Um, and uh, to patron clientism both within the country and in, in, in external relations without the kind of institutional checks that say a, a confederal assembly uh, might have, have had. But, Confederal assemblies may have had their own flaws and messiness and maybe even re really a, a nasty side to, the, to them. That, that's a history we, we don't know. But what does this mean for thinking about politics today? Well, you know, I think what, what, what so many uh, of us have done is to, is to read back the few possibilities that actually came to pass is it, to, and to assume they're inevitable. That, that is, that the... That, the, the 200 nation states that emerged at with the end of the breakup of colonial empires, the only possible outcome uh, of, that, of that process, and this was true from, from, from day one. Well, I think it's important to think, think of the wider range of possibilities uh, that people had in their minds at other points in history. Not because any one of them, including that of federation, is necessarily to be, uh, 
to be implemented in the, in, in, in the future. Uh, a lot of water is under the bridge. Uh, but merely to think of multiple possibilities. I think it's really important to think that, uh, to use political imagination in a more general way. And the story I'm trying to tell here is, a, is one which is a variety of forms of political imagination at play, not just one. Uh, and in the debates in France to, to, today, and people, are, people argue for, for their equivalent of, of um, affirmative action programs, say, uh, and then somebody's always going to say, no, 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 you can't do that. That's not French. Well, it's, perfect. It's, it's just as French as anything else. Uh, France has done it in the past. There, there are perfectly consistent logical reasons why a French political system can, uh, can adapt to uh, a system that recognizes uh, that, that people have, are part of different forms of, of, of collective life uh, and in, integrate that into a political system. Now, any one solution might have its flaws, and these might be extremely dangerous flaws. But there's a, the possibility, I think, is an important thing to, to keep in, in mind. And that's why I think tell, telling uh, history is something other than uh, the unfolding of the inevitable present is an important uh, act politically. Yeah, final question, no? For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.